morning. Greetings to each one of you in Jesus' name. I suppose it has something to do with my age and the stage of life that I am, but probably become a little more reflective than I used to be about things, and it's very interesting to be standing here 20 years after I went to Bible school here as a student, not something I expected at that point in my life. But it's, it's good to be here. It's good to see many familiar faces and many unfamiliar ones, too. Probably a little hard to know always what to share. Just coming through a funeral yesterday. The message I have this morning has been titled Portraits of God. You know, the other evening when we were here, the viewing, there was pictures up here on the screen and they showed a wide variety of scenes from Sister Anne's life, you know, all the way from a little child to a young bride to a mother, grandmother, many different pictures of her life. I think also of the poem, The Blind Man and the Elephant. You remember how these seven blind men came up to the elephant, and they were trying to decide what an elephant is. And the one grabbed the tail, and he said, it's like a rope. And another one touched the trunk, and he said, it's like a snake. Another one touched the leg, and he said, it's like a tree. And they were, the poem concludes, they were all partly right, and they were all partly wrong. And this morning, as we think about God, there's different aspects of God and his character. And there is no way that we can give a balanced picture of God this morning. We don't have enough time for that. But I've picked out several, several aspects of God that I want to look at. Maybe another story just to illustrate a little more. A number of months ago, there was a, I was at a memorial service for a man in our home community who had taken his own life. And he was a man who I'd had some business dealings. We farmed some ground close together and Often I felt a little insecure about when I interacted with him. He was a very, um, just his personality being what it was could make a person feel insecure. Or maybe that's my problem. But, but there was a point in our, in our working together that there was a misunderstanding. And he was kind of upset at me. He didn't talk to me himself, but it came through another through someone else in the community. 
And I tried to clear that up. But over the last six months or a year of his life, he had been under an intense amount of pressure. And to the point that it was affecting him mentally and felt very sorry for him. He was, he was going through things. He was not a Christian. He was going through things that a person needs God to handle. And he didn't have that. But as I sat in that memorial service and there was different people spoke and they shared memories. And memories of a generous man, memories of a man who was, who was very kind, a good neighbor. And as we came out of that, I had some of my children with me. And as we got in the van, one of my children said, was he a nice man? And somehow what they had heard from me made them question, what's the difference here? Now, probably that they were thinking of some of the aspects is he wasn't doing well the last several months of his life mentally, and we would have probably talked about that, and then him taking his own life, some of the discussion about that. I believe that what was shared at his memorial service was probably accurate by the people who shared it. I don't, I don't question that too much. I think he was a generous man, and I think he was a good neighbor. And yet I had seen another side of him as well. And, and it, again, it's different pictures of the same man. We see that often. <clears throat> as we think about God again this morning, I realize we tend to think of God in human terms, and God is beyond our comprehension in many ways. He's... He lives outside of the, the bounds of time and what we can understand. But my goal this morning is to help you think of God, who he is, and what he desires to accomplish in your life. So as we think of God, think of these, these pictures of God. How does that affect my life? How does that affect my choices? Also, I'll be using, we'll be looking at the New Testament a little bit, and I'll be using the Jesus and God somewhat interchangeably, so just clarify that. The first portrait of God I have is God as a creator. I'm not going to turn to Genesis 1, but you remember that story of creation. And I'm sure there's many gifted men here this morning who can create things. Gifted women who can create things. Depends on which side of the house, what that's going to be. But you can, you can take some ingredients, you can take some raw materials, and you can make something beautiful with that. You can make something useful. But no one here can do as God and take this dark mass spinning through space and make the world that we see around us, this beautiful world. And God took light. You think about light as a piece of God himself. 
and he placed that here on earth to take away darkness. And he placed a star and a moon at just the right distance from this earth to provide light and heat. And then he started creating what's on the earth. He, he made plants. Everything from the trees to the flowers to the herbs to the grass. Infinite variety. And then he made animals. All different types and varieties. And then he took these plants and animals and bugs and he arranged them in ecosystems where different plants and animals interact and they help each other out and they work together. They depend on each other for survival. And in all of these things he made this unending genetic diversity within all these species that allows for little variations. And I, I think in terms of fruit, you take an apple, and within, within that apple, they, there's so many varieties of apples, and some you stick in the cooler for three months, and some you have to eat right off the tree. And there's some that get brown when you cut them, and some that don't. Some are sweet, some are tart. All that variety is contained in the, in the apple seed, and you start planting apple seeds, and you never know exactly what's going to come. All that genetic diversity. And then you take that across to all the different flowers, all the different other plants and trees. And after that, God made man. And he made a man who can think and a man who can reason. And a man who can have a relationship with him. I was talking to Brother David just since we're here. And we were talking about choices. And in that conversation, it just struck me how something that he said that God has given man choice except for two things. Where and when we're born and if we leave it in God's hands as we should when we die. But in between there, God has given us almost an in, infinite number of choices that we can make. But none of us can choose our parents. None of us can choose the community we're born in or the country. Everything that man makes is made using what God has already created. You're just rearranging what God has already made into something a little different. We know that God is a God of beauty. He's a God of order. He's a God of absolute truth. And he, he showed that in creation. And just for contrast, you think of Satan and what he, his kingdom is about, and it's about destruction. It's about taking the creation down, tearing it apart. 
whatever God has made in order and beauty in truth, the soul of man itself and Satan is there to destroy, to take it down at every level. That's his goal. God is a creator. He's a creator that cares about each one of us. He formed us specifically for a reason. The next portrait of God is a God hard to understand. If you'd turn to Exodus chapter 2, you remember the story how Jacob and his family went down to Egypt because of the famine, and they stayed there. In Exodus chapter 1, it talks about how the children of Israel multiplied, and I don't have a real defined timeline here when some of these things occurred in in Exodus chapter 1. But it says in verse 8, there was a new king came on the scene that did not know Joseph. This, This... Joseph that had saved the Egyptian empire. And we have a new king who doesn't remember about Joseph. So he said, we're going to make these people slaves. And I cannot cannot find an exact number of years. The children of Israel were in Egypt for 400 years. I'm not sure when they entered slavery within that. But several hundred years at least. No message from God. Okay? We know what God said to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs. And we moved down to Egypt and we haven't heard from God since. And now we're slaves. You read through chapter 1 there and they're multiplying, they're becoming quite a nation. And King said they're getting too... they're getting to be too big a people. We need to kill the men, kill the, ba- the boy, babies. And God intervened. God, God allowed them to, to work around that so that at least not all of them were killed. Hundreds of years of slavery, no word from God. And they're supposed to be God's chosen people. People that are special. You have chapter 2 and it begins with the story, the birth of Moses. I'd like to read the last three verses of chapter 2. So, birth of Moses in chapter 1, verse 23. This is 80 years later. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked unto the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. But just remember, 80 years time from Exodus chapter 2, verse 1, until verse 23. There's not many of you here that are over 80 years old. It's a lifetime. 
And in that lifetime, it doesn't talk about it, but there, there was continued slavery. They were still trying to kill all the, the men babies, the boys. They were, the people were living under this cloud. Where was God? One writer points out the amazing thing is that they still had any faith in God. It's a God who is silent as they suffered generation after generation, dying in slavery. A God who seems silent as their babies were torn from their arms. It was a God they did not understand. And we know that in God's economy, he says that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years one day. God, in God's mind, time is different than it is for us. We tend to read these stories and we don't think about. You think back in your ancestry 200 years. And think if you would have been here a slave. Your, your ancestry was slaves through all this time for 200 years. Where's God? You think of when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Herod and his desire to keep control and to keep, keep the kingdom in his family. And he went in there and killed all the boy babies again, two years and under. And you think what that would look like in the Seymour community. All the little boys, two years and under, dead, just like that. Where's God? Think of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 7 gives that story how John the Baptist is in prison. You know that Jesus said about John the Baptist, there's no greater man than John the Baptist. He was the, the forerunner of the Son of God, the one who came to prepare people's hearts for Jesus' message. And John's in prison now. And John says, is this actually the Messiah? Who, who, he's not living up to what I thought, what I expected. Jesus is not what I expected him to be. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and, he sit, and they come and they say, John the Baptist wants to know, are you the one? Are you actually the Messiah? And if you read that story, it seems like Jesus just kind of let the question hang. He didn't necessarily answer it right away. It says he was healing, he was teaching. And then he turned to John's disciples and he said, Go tell John. The lame are healed, the blind are being made to see. The gospel's being preached. And there's one more thing. Blessed is he who is not offended in me. 
God is hard to understand sometimes. I think back here a few months ago, October 7, what happened in Israel. And as a husband and a father, I can hardly stand to think about what that was like for those people. Where's God? Is God hard to understand? I'd like to take you a few chapters later in Exodus now for the next portrait. Exodus chapter 19. We have a God showing his greatness and his might, his power here. Remember, the children of Israel had very little knowledge of God. They had what had been passed down, we assume orally, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, down through the generations. But they were not, God had not spoken to them by direct revelation. And Moses had had been that, they got messages through Moses and Aaron. They have very little experience, very little knowledge of God. And God finally answers their prayers and he brings them out of Egypt. He brings them to the Red Sea. And they're between a a rock and a hard place. An ocean and a mountain. And he makes a way to bring them through. And if you follow that, that story through... They weren't two or three days past the Red Sea and they're complaining because they're going to die of thirst. A God who can make a dry path through the ocean and they're worrying about something to drink. God brings them to Mount Sinai for chapter 19. And Moses, verse 3, I'll begin reading there. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then shall you be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation." These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. God's desire for his people. He he said, I brought you out, and if you obey me, you're going to be my special people. Skip over to verse 16 now. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning. And I want you to think about the the imagery here, the picture that's in these words. Came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain, the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. 
And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked great, greatly. And the voice of the trumpet waxed long and waxed louder and louder. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. God told Moses, you need to go down. You tell the people to stay away from the mountain. Do not come close to the mountain. You schoolboys, what's the picture here of this mountain? Thunders, lightnings, thick cloud. Verse 18, it was altogether in a smoke. Smoke ascended as a smoke of a furnace, just this huge black column of smoke. Thunder, lightning, say earthquake, the whole mountain quaked greatly. What does that make you think of from your science class? Volcano, thank you. The picture here is a volcano. I know you don't have big volcanic mountains around here, but Probably many of you have seen pictures of Mount St. Helens when that erupted. That's the word picture we have here. How many of you could stand at the base of a volcano that's erupting? How soon would you forget that? Ever? How soon did the children of Israel forget? about 30 days, 40 days. You think of God as he brought the, the children of Israel. Remember, these people are used to watching the Egyptians and their idol worship. Egypt was the world power at the time. Egypt was a strong nation, and they worshiped idols. That's, that's, the, that's how the Israelites... That was their frame of reference. And God had to tell, show them that this is something different than the Egyptians had. I am not an idol. I, and he, he basically showed them a volcano and said, this, this is a picture of my power. Turn over to chapter 20. First part of chapter 20, as you know, is the Ten Commandments. Verse 18. And the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you. And that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me 
gods of silver, neither shall you make unto you gods of gold. You can read on, but I'm going to stop there. People were afraid. They said, we cannot handle God. It's too much for us. And God said, I showed you this to show you who I am. Do not make idols. And I think it was within 40 days, approximately, they were making a golden calf. I'd like to take you to Revelation. This is... Exodus is the picture of the Old Testament and God's power. And I want to take you to Revelation and look at the picture of God in Revelation. First of all, in Revelation 1, we have the the description of Jesus as John John saw him. Revelation 1, verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I'm going to stop there, but that, that picture of Jesus as he stands in the midst of his church, that's the New Testament side of Mount Sinai. When we see a picture of God in his power and in his glory, how does that affect our lives? How does that affect the choices I make? You can look at Isaiah chapter 6 and the vision that Isaiah had. And Isaiah said when he saw that, he said, I, I can't handle this. I'm a sinner. Turn over to Revelation chapter 4. I'd just like to read a few verses. This is the picture of the throne. Verse 1, Revelation 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeds, proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and, they were, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, New Testament, picture of God and his power and his majesty and who he is. And you notice that 
There's lightnings and thunderings associated with this picture as well, coming from the throne. A God so great and mighty. Next portrait of God I have is a God who is with his people. Turn to Daniel chapter 3. I'm not going to read the passage. I think you know the story well. We have three young men here who believed in God. I want you to think a little bit what these men had ex- what these young men had experienced. They were captives in a strange land. They had probably watched their homes and their city be destroyed, possibly their families. They were not with their families. They're isolated. They're over here in the king's palace. Probably not going to church every week with their people of like-minded faith. These men had seen a lot of tragedy. They'd seen a lot of pain. And where was God? What's the point in serving God? Be much easier to just blend in with the Babylonian people, just live life there. But these young men were well taught and they were well trained and they knew the story of Mount Sinai and they believed it. And it made a difference in their lives. They knew that God had said, thou shalt not bow down to idols. You know, when the king set up that image and the music played and everyone else around them bowed down, they stayed standing. And I really think from the story we have, I think they stood taller than they normally did. I don't think there was any hunching over, trying to not stand up. I think they stood up taller and straighter. And they were brought before the king. King Nebuchadnezzar threatened to burn them if they didn't bow down. He said, I'll give you another chance. He said, we don't need another chance. It doesn't matter. Essentially, they said, it doesn't matter what you do to us. What matters to us is who God is. And at that point, the king had no more power over them. They didn't care. They were willing to be burned. The king was angry, and he told his men, his, his strongest soldiers, he said, throw them into the furnace. And I imagine he, they each, one man on, his, on their hands, the other one on their legs, and they swung them and threw them. And the fire was so hot, that the soldiers who threw him in died. Three young men thrown into that fire. And as they stood to their feet in in the middle of that furnace, the king said, there's four men, and one of them's the son of God. One of them looks like the son of God.
to me, it's one of the most beautiful pictures from the Old Testament that we have. The Son of God standing with his people, standing with people who are faithful to him, who are willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice. Let's turn now to the New Testament Gospels, Luke chapter 13. This portrait of God, I've entitled The Mercy of God. Verse 6, Luke chapter 13, verse 6. And he spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he, answering, said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. How often does God look at my life and your life and he says, where's the fruit? I don't see any fruit here. And how often is it the carnality in my heart, the serving self in my heart, that keeps the fruit from growing in my life. And Jesus says, just a minute, give me another year. Let me prune it. Let me fertilize it. Let me till the soil around it. Let me bring some hard things into his life and see if we can produce some fruit. mercy of God. How many times do we drive down the road or we're at work and we say we have a close call and we say one minute sooner or later And that would have been the end of my life. One inch further. And God in his mercy reached down and protected us. And said, no, I want to give you more time to bear fruit in my kingdom. You aren't quite ready. Mercy of God. Turn over to Luke chapter 15. We have here the familiar story, the prodigal son. <clears throat> I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the picture here 
is a picture of God's forgiveness. Verse 20. This is speaking of the prodigal son. He arose and came to his father and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said unto his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And let's make a feast and Verse 20 is really the, the picture I want, though, is a prodigal son came, came home. And what I've read, old men, patriarchs in this era did not show emotion much. And they didn't go running around. They walked. But when that father saw his son coming up the road, says he ran. He didn't care who saw him. He didn't care about anything else except to get to his son and give him a hug. That's God's forgiveness. He's waiting to see us coming, and then he'll run to meet us. prodigal son had sinned horribly against his father in how he acted. And he went running to show his forgiveness, the father. I have two more. I'd like to think about God as a restorer of sight. Mark chapter 10 we have the story of blind Bartimaeus, verse 46. Can you imagine if, if you were blind Bartimaeus, and you're sitting by the roadside, and you've been blind as long as you can remember, and the only way you can make a living is to beg for handouts from other people. But because you're blind, you can hear really well. And all of a sudden, you hear a noise in the distance, faint noise. It keeps getting louder. And it sounds like a lot of people. You ask someone beside you, what's going on? They say, Jesus is coming by. You imagine the desperate feeling of Bartimaeus. It is my one chance, the only chance I will ever have to be healed, to be able to see. He's heard about Jesus. He's, he can make the blind men see. So he starts yelling, over here, Jesus, I need help. And the people around him said, be quiet. You're making a, you're making a scene. And he just kept yelling. Over here, I need help. Then everything kind of gets quiet. And the people that were just telling you to be quiet say, well, go. He's telling you to come. And so you stumble toward Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want? 
I want to be able to see. And all of a sudden, light, vision, being able to see the trees, the people, the face of Jesus. And each one of us are blind. We're born blind. If you go to John chapter 9, it talks about the man who is born blind. We are all born blind. And until we come to Jesus, we cannot see. And Jesus came to restore sight and to help us see, to give us that vision of God and what he wants. One more. This last portrait of God is the gentleness of God. If you back up in Mark chapter 10 verse 13 and they brought unto him young and they brought young children to him that he should touch them and his disciples rebuked those that brought them and when Jesus saw it he was much displeased and said unto them suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of God verily I say unto you whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child he shall not enter therein and he took them up in his arms and put his hands upon them and blessed them the gentleness of God. Jesus had a lot of work to do. There was people to teach, there was people to heal, disciples to get in line before he left them. The children were important to him. And the picture of Jesus holding those children. Several months ago, we were at a graveside service for a stillborn baby, and we had our youngest with us. And we talked about what was going on. And that night, that was a problem, because he, he started talking about that. And he was concerned about the baby in the ground. How do you explain to a two-year-old. So I got out the Bible storybook. I showed him the picture of Jesus with the children. And we talked about that, how Jesus is holding the baby. The same God whose power is like the physical manifestation of his powers like a volcano. The same God cares about children and babies enough to hold them. This is who is important in my kingdom. God is a gentle God with us. I realize we've covered a lot of different pictures of God. And depending where we're at in life, 
probably we're going to gravitate toward one of those pictures as something meaningful to us. But I want us to think again, how do these things affect my life? How, does, how do these pictures of God affect my choices? How do they affect how I respond to the experiences that I face in life? God is a great God. God is a holy God. And God is a loving God who cares about each one of us personally. May you be encouraged this week to look to God to follow God and let God direct your life. Let's kneel for prayer.